Hello and welcome to this edition of the Frontline Gastroenterology Podcast. I'm James Morris, trainee editor at The Journal. This month I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Diraj Tripathi, consultant hepatologist from Queen Elizabeth Hospital in Birmingham and senior author of the Adult Liver Transplantation Guidelines recently published in Frontline. We'll be discussing in this episode the current landscape for liver transplantation in the UK and give some pointers on best practice in the preoperative selection, workup and management of patients on the waiting list. And in a second episode, we'll continue the conversation as we explore the post-transplant care of these patients. Dr. Tripathi, thank you so much for joining us uh, today. As we kick off, can you begin by giving us some context um, over how liver transplantation has developed in the UK um, over the last few decades? Thank you, James. So um, really in the last, uh, well, three decades, uh, we were talking really in the, uh, in the 1990s. Um, I do remember quite... Uh, quite vivid, uh, nice memories of when, because uh, I trained in Edinburgh and uh, at the, the Edinburgh Liver Unit was actually formed in 1990. So I've got a lot of uh, memories of, of that era. Uh, and in fact, actually Birmingham played quite an instrumental role in the development of the liver unit in, in Edinburgh. Uh, so I've seen quite a lot of changes over the uh, three decades. Um, and uh, I think one of the things to, to say is, is really uh, that the donor rates in UK still remain relatively low and do lag behind. I mean, we'll come on to that as a, in, in the future uh, later on in the podcast, but uh, the per million population donor rate in the UK is 16, which is still uh, lags behind some other European countries, in particular Spain, which uh, I think at some time it was 35, but it's more at 25 per million population. Uh, there's been a significant change in the uh, I mean, the technique of transplantation has remained basically very similar. Um, there have been some new techniques which we'll come on to talk about. Uh, there's been a, a, a quite a large change in the demographics of the uh, recipients, uh, in particular, the recipients are now older uh, and uh, the uh, uh, they have more uh, with metabolic syndrome, so fatty liver. In fact, in the 90s, called cryptogenic cirrhosis. Uh, when in fact a lot of patients actually had fatty liver disease. So this is something, in fact, in the last three decades, it's almost, that's when it was, um, uh, uh, you know, discovered, so to speak, because these patients had uh, not cryptogenic, but they actually had fatty liver disease. Patients are definitely getting uh, older. Uh, the, uh, the actual grafts themselves, the, the, uh, the donor uh, grafts are quite, quite a lot different compared to 30 years ago. And uh, there is an increased use of uh, DCD grafts, but that's a donation after cardiac death. Uh, and this has increased significantly and, and the rates of DCD grafts have remained fairly uh, steady uh, over, the, uh, over the last few years. Um, but there was quite a change maybe about 10 years ago uh, shift to DBD graphs again. This is really uh, uh, in light of the relatively uh, small donor pool uh, and uh, uh, the the low transplant uh, rates that that the UK has. Uh, there's been some changes in immunosuppression, uh, particularly uh, with regards to more individualized approach. Uh, so, for example, renal sparing regimens have been introduced. Uh, uh, either uh, using induction therapy with interleukin-2 receptor agonists or uh, CNI minimization strategies. There's also uh, a buzzword that's, that's come about is operational tolerance. Uh, 
which is really uh, patients developing tolerance over a period of time and being able to wean off immunosuppression. We're not quite there yet. This is still an active research area. The allocation system has changed greatly. Uh, and I think we may come on to discuss that. This is the national uh, liver allocation system, which is a big change from, uh, from the previous uh, prior to 2018. Um, and overall, the number of transplants that we're doing has increased uh, significantly. Uh, by almost 50% or so, certainly in Birmingham, when I started uh, in uh, just before uh, 2010, we were doing about 120, 130 transplants, and now we're talking about over 200 transplants per year. Uh, outcomes are, are good, continue to improve. Uh, so the last, uh, the most recent uh, transplant uh, report published by NHSBT, we did about 9,000 transplants in the last 10 years. Uh, there's been increased numbers of patients on the waiting list. We have we do very few live donor liver transplantation. Three top indications are alcohol, cancer, and metabolic diseases. And uh, uh, of those on the elective waiting list, over 80% have been transplanted after two years. The one and five year survival is 94 and 84% uh, for elective uh, transplants, slightly less for the super urgent transplants. And uh, cancer, PSC, uh, autoimmune diseases, and cryptogenic cirrhosis seem to be at higher risk uh, than other transplants with uh, worse outcomes. Uh, DCD, roughly around 20% of total transplants done. Um, and DCD use is in particularly uh, a feature in patients who have hepatocellular carcinoma. And interestingly, since the introduction of the national uh, allocation system, the number of DBD transplants has actually dropped a bit. And the overall waiting time has also decreased significantly. It used to be around 130, 140 days. Now it's 65 days. Uh, so much lower now since the introduction of the national allocation system. Well, you've introduced a number of topics there, which will be fantastic to explore in a little bit more detail. I think one thing I just wanted to, before we launch into the excellent guidelines you published, was uh, the um, organ donation system. And particularly, just because it's so recently introduced in, in England, uh, the uh, opt-out system. Uh, could you just very briefly just give us a bit of context of the rationale for the change in the law regarding that and, and what we hope to be achieved. So yes, um, and this is a, a very obviously very relevant and topical area. I mean, the this opt-out or presumed consent is, is not new. And indeed Wales, it was introduced in Wales, I think in, in 2015, and it has led to a significant increase in the consent rates in Wales. So this is really, uh, I mean, there's, there's different ways of looking at it. There's this kind of hard or soft opt-out. So the, uh, the more hard opt-out is right, that's it. You know, if you've, just, uh, if you've not signed something to say that you don't want uh, to be a potential recipient after uh, your death, then you're going, to be, uh, you're going to be using your, harvesting your organs uh, and then that's it. Whereas a more soft option is uh, that, that uh, even if you haven't consented, uh, if you are considered to be a potential recipient, then the, your family can also uh, have a say. And that is indeed the case. So relatives can block the donation. Uh, and the, uh, this doesn't apply to the pediatric uh, population, the under 18s, uh, those who, who lack capacity. Uh, and if, uh, if the uh, recipient has been in the UK for less than 12 months. Uh, so, so the, the, I mean, you, we could actually talk for the entire hour on this topic, but there, there are a lot, there is clearly, it is a, a controversial area, but there's no doubt that uh, certainly in Wales, there has been some success. And in England, uh, there's a forecast 
prediction that it could increase, uh, it could save up to 700 lives per year in England. Uh, but it's important to get uh, uh, really buy-in from from all all, all parties concerned. I've, I've had, in fact, when this was <laughs> introduced, uh, I had actually my my secretary uh, contact to say, well, "What's you know?" Because there are obviously religious um, concerns and cultural beliefs as well about donations. So, so there's actually a lot to take into account. So I think you, the England has gone for the more soft opt-out, uh, where the, the relatives can certainly intervene and block the donation. Well, it'd be interesting to see how it develops um, with the um, organ donation rates in the coming years uh, with that. Okay, so moving on to the sort of main body of, of, of the guidelines, uh, which really were excellently laid out and just very helpful, um, particularly for the general physician who might be looking after these patients in their general clinics and in regional centres. And to begin with, I'd love to look at uh, the listing process and pre-transplant care. Of, of our patients with advanced liver disease. Um, and the, pa the paper looks at the main indications of liver transplantation, which are of course acute liver failure, chronic liver disease, but then also variant syndromes in HCC. Um, we'll focus on ALF and chronic liver disease, but I do encourage those that are listening to, to look at um, uh, some of the detail of the variant syndromes in HCC as well, which would indicate they're important causes uh, for liver transplant. Um, but for ALF, Obviously, it's a very rare disease, but frightening when we encounter it and the patients can become very, very sick very quickly. Could you just summarise the main causes of acute liver failure in the UK and what the main prognostic predictors are of poor outcomes of these patients? So, so if I might just step back, uh, uh, James, just just with regards to the guidelines. So, so just to, just to give you an, uh, just a very brief introduction of how the guidelines came about. So really, this is a, a project that uh, that is uh, obviously to the BSG, but also there has been some involvement of the British Liver Transplant Group. So, so everything really started about uh, four years ago, and and uh, Charles Milson is 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 the lead author, and he and really worked very hard and and, and putting together. A guideline is really uh, uh, it takes a lot of effort uh, and <laughs> something that you need to really uh, you know a chunk of your life is, is, is devoted to putting together a, a guideline so it's, it's, not, it's not to be taken lightly really and, and really hats off to Charles for uh, or Charlie for, for putting it together and bringing everybody together uh, you know everybody's really really busy so it's really uh, busy clinicians difficult to get busy clinicians together uh, so it uh, worked incredibly hard to, to, to do that. With regards to acute liver failure yes it is uh, a very devastating uh, condition uh, in, in the UK the, the main um, uh, causes for acute liver failure really remain uh, the, the sort of drug related toxic uh, particularly paracetamol uh, viral hepatitis is also uh, another cause, particularly Hep B-related acute liver failure. Uh, I've seen some of those, um, and uh, and then you know there there is kind of non-paracetamol-related uh, 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 liver failure, which can be uh, what we call a seronegative, uh, which often presents uh, with the more subfulminant, longer course, uh, with potentially worse outcome than the more fulminant liver failure. Uh, other conditions include Bud Chiari disease, uh, Wilson's can present with acute fulminant failure. Uh, and also the other thing to, to note in acute liver failure, it can be part of a systemic condition as well. For example, if a patient has uh, lymphoma, so I've seen a couple of patients presented with acute liver failure in the context of lymphoma, uh, systemic widespread lymphoma, and clearly these are not transplant uh, candidates. Uh, but certainly the 
the the the main cause would would be uh, toxic um, uh, uh, drug uh, drug drug induced. Thank you. So, if we encounter these patients in the acute medical take or in the general gastroenterology ward, what should be our priorities in the early management of patients with acute liver failure, and when should we be calling up our regional transplant centre? Um, yes, yeah, so, so really the, this is where, you know, the clock is very much ticking uh, and particularly in the more fulminant uh, uh, patient, uh, the, the clinical course can change very, very quickly. Uh, so really they need to pick up the phone and you don't send an email and wait for a response. You need to pick up the phone. If you're suspecting somebody with acute liver failure, pick up the phone and speak to the nearest transplant center. Uh, even if you think oh, the patient's probably going to be okay, we'd, we'd rather know earlier uh, than, than leaving it later so that we can even offer some advice on how to monitor and what steps to take. Uh, and, and this is particularly for the paracetamol related liver failure, which can progress very rapidly uh, to, to uh, fulminant uh, liver failure and particularly raised intracranial pressure, uh, which uh, is often a, a mode of death in these patients. Um, so it's important to take a full history, uh, the, the onset of encephalopathy from jaundice is particularly important. Uh, addiction and psychiatric history is absolutely key. Uh, particularly in, in paracetamol-induced liver uh, injury. Uh, this might involve contacting the GP or getting a, a collateral history. You need to look at comorbidities. Again, this will influence whether a patient is a potential transplant candidate. Uh, pregnancy is an important one. I should have mentioned pregnancy-related, so fatty liver pregnancy can cause acute liver failure as well. Uh, a full um, uh, travel history, recreational drugs history, family history, uh, and, and also... Uh, imaging is sometimes relevant. Mostly it's not, not so important, but uh, uh, it can be uh, important. And all the time, uh, it's important that critical care is involved uh, uh, because the clinical course can, can change rapidly. And it's important to, to, to uh, call up a friendly anesthetist at an early stage, particularly if we're thinking about uh, transferring these patients uh, to, to a, a regional transplant center for a safe transfer. Uh, if there is any particularly in the fulminant liver failure, it is uh, better if the patient is uh, intubated and airway, airway protection prior to transfer. And can you just describe how the listing process works for acute liver failure and how it's different for chronic liver disease in terms of organ allocation? So, so for, for um, acute liver failure, it hasn't changed. Uh, so the, the national offering system is only for this, uh, uh, for the, uh, the new national offering system is only for the uh, chronic liver diseases and only for DBDs. So, so for acute liver failure, there's already a national system. So uh, these patients are placed on a super urgent waiting list and they need to meet a certain criteria. Uh, and there are different categories. Uh, and the clear main distinction is between paracetamol and non-paracetamol related uh, liver, uh, liver failure. So, so there's a number of categories which the patient needs to meet in order to be considered suitable for transplant listing. Uh, I mean, they are derived from the King's College criteria, which we, most of us are quite familiar with, um, but they are specific uh, for, I think they're specific for the, for the UK and have been refined over the years. Uh, for example, in the past, we used to be able to list patients with that encephalopathy, but now, you know, they really do need to have encephalopathy. That is the cardinal feature of acute liver failure. There's been a slight tweak with regards to the criteria for seronegatives as well. The, the seronegative patients are particularly a concern because they have a more uh, <coughs> sort of subacute uh, course and, uh, and they can deteriorate very, very quickly. 
and generally there's a longer time to encephalopathy <coughs> from jaundice so and they can have a worse outcome and uh, one needs to consider listing them uh, at an earlier stage uh, and once they they meet the criteria the super urgent listing criteria then uh, they can be listed uh, obviously there needs to be communication between <coughs> the transplant team which is a surgeon physician sometimes intensivist and the transplant coordinator is key to this process so there's a bit of form filling to do and obviously throughout all of this we mustn't forget the relatives as well so the relatives need to be kept uh, fully informed uh, of the process uh, it is obviously it's very different from the elective transplants it is uh, 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 the, the transplant here will be uh, uh, life-saving and, and really uh, the clock is ticking. So everything moves fairly quickly and usually once the patient is on the super urgent list, uh, a graft is available within uh, 24 to 48 hours. Great. Um, that's a really helpful summary uh, for, for ALF. And um, just moving on now to chronic liver disease, it, the, the, really the, the, the biggest um, category of those for liver transplantation. Um, Sometimes as clinicians, we struggle to know the optimal time of when to refer our patients in the clinic who have uh, advanced cirrhosis. Um, having had outcomes from our transplant centers saying it's either too early or too late uh, in terms of the referral, could you just give us some guidance on how to decide which patients to uh, send for transplant assessment and the, and the appropriate timing of that? Yes, so this is a really important area, James. So, so um, and, and something that, in fact, was is one of the key aims of this document. It was really, uh, it isn't focusing so much on the nitty gritty of transplantation, but it's actually focusing on improving the the, the quality of referrals to the transplant centres and also to improve confidence of the referrals and the secondary care services uh, in identifying the suitable patients for. Uh, to refer, uh, and um, really, we're 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 as as you re have read in the in the guidelines, uh, the key thing is uh, when patients decompensate. So so by decompensate, we're talking about uh, often ascites, encephalopathy, uh, which is refractory, uh, increasing jaundice. So if a patient has decompensated liver disease, uh, then you really need to be thinking about transplant assessment at an early stage. Uh, we use the UKELD uh, as well. So the UKELD of 49 or higher would indicate that the patient is eligible for transplantation, but UKELD is not enough on its own to, for a patient to be put on the transplant waiting list. You'd also need uh, to have an indication. An indication is really decompensation. So really when a patient starts decompensating, ascites, ascites is often one of the first uh, uh, um, uh, uh, features, early features uh, in, in, in chronic liver disease. And particularly, you know, we're talking about, depends on the etiology of the, of the uh, um, condition as well. So for alcoholic liver disease, obviously we would advise the patient to stop drinking and usually wait not longer than three months to see an improvement. But I wouldn't wait any longer than that. But even if a patient hasn't fully abstained, uh, if, if, if the condition is really deteriorating uh, and, and there's you know, fully absent for the three months, then, then I think it's worth contacting the transplant unit at an earlier stage. And clearly there are other conditions where there is a degree of urgency, particularly uh, PSC, cholestatic diseases, uh, particularly difficult to manage because there's no medical therapy. The other areas, uh, patients with cancers, clearly uh, um, early referral is key because th there's only a, a certain number of patients that fulfill criteria, uh, that the so-called Milan criteria where they can be offered a cure. And there are obviously the non-decompensating uh, uh, 
indication, uh, indications such as pruritus in the context of PVC, hepatopulmonary syndrome, uh, uh, and, and portopulmonary uh, hypertension is one which has come up, but uh, we, we, we know that these patients often respond well to drug therapy for their pulmonary hypertension and may not need a, a, need a transplant. So it's really early dialogue with the transplant center uh, when a patient starts to decompensate. I think that's key, and uh, not just looking at the numbers. That's very helpful. And so we've got a patient in our clinic who we want to refer is just presented with a new decompensation. Uh, and we want to get in touch with our referral unit. What, what would be the key information in that initial referral letter that would really help expedite uh, their assessment and reduce delays um, for that patient? Yes, yes. So, so this is, uh, um, yeah, I, I mean, clearly a history. Uh, so we just go with the basics. So good, good history uh, and uh, when we're uh, medical history, but also addiction histories particularly important in those with alcohol-related liver disease uh, and, uh, and, and, and what, so really it's what is the indication, uh, why do you think this patient needs a transplant and decompensating events is obviously important and not responding to, to medical therapy or other measures. Um, the other thing that uh, is, is, is very important is comorbidities. So we'd like to know if they've got, uh, for example, diabetes, heart disease, uh, is, 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 is a very important one. And if they do have heart disease, uh, you know, it's, it's actually don't, you know, I wouldn't advise referring straight away. It's worth discussing with a cardiologist. Uh, so I've had a patient who had a, a valve, heart valve operation. And uh, actually when we did an echo, the echo was done, it was quite abnormal. And the patient has gone on to have a transesophageal echo, but that was even before they came to transplantation. So it's important just to assess their, uh, their, their uh, comorbidities. Um, and, and I think particularly challenging, I suspect, are those patients with, uh, with alcoholic liver disease and exact timing. The other area that we want to know about uh, which can influence outcomes is nutrition, and particularly patients who have um, uh, uh, refractory ascites, there's often significant nutritional compromise there. Uh, uh, and, and the other thing, obviously, is, is recognizing when a patient is too unwell for transplant. Uh, and this is a tricky one, uh, and, and the guideline does certainly uh, uh, important to emphasize the role of uh, palliative therapies as well. Uh, so, you know, uh, this is something to appreciate because patients may actually present very, very late, uh, and even discussing a case on the phone with the transplant unit may help in, in decisions with regards to, to palliative care. That's very helpful. Thank you. Um, so moving on to the workup process, could you briefly summarize a typical pathway a patient goes through investigations and assessments in their journey towards being considered for listing? So uh, in, the, in the guideline, there, there is some uh, uh, guidance in Appendix 3 with regards uh, to, the, uh, to the workup of patients and what, uh, what investigations are needed. So, so uh, they do, they, I mean, fair to say they get quite a lot of investigations. Clearly, we're looking not just at the liver itself and, and staging the liver disease, but also the whole patient. Um, so it's a big operation. So they need to be fit, uh, heart, lungs, uh, and, and so they will all have an echocardiogram, uh, ECG, chest X-ray, uh, and an assessment of their functional status. Um, this is what, where the anesthetists are, are particularly helpful here. Uh, so so uh, it isn't, again, not just about numbers, but some patients are actually functionally quite good despite not having 
uh, in a very, very good nutritional assessment. Uh, and, and the other thing that, that is important is, uh, and not, not, not always done very well, is, is, is overall staging of the disease with regards to, for example, the endoscopy needs to be up to date. If a patient has PSC, they need to have up to date colonoscopy. Uh, and also the bloods. I mean, you know, sometimes we, we get referred patients who, whose bloods are quite out of uh, date uh, and they should be have bloods done within three months of the, of the referral. So we tend to repeat a lot of the bloods again and have up-to-date uh, blood so that we can calculate the UKILD. Uh, and as part of the, the, um, uh, the assessment, we would do um, uh, look at the uh, addiction history as well. There are also disease-specific uh, uh, investigations, for example, particularly for cancer, uh, they need to have up-to-date scans uh, and also uh, for viral hepatitis, uh, look at their antiviral therapy. And as I said, PSC, make sure they have an up-to-date colonoscopy. Uh, so, they, 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 so, so, you know, we have an outpatient transplant assessment program and also an inpatient transplant assessment program. Most patients are fine with outpatient assessments and, and they run through all of these uh, investigations. And if there is a problem, then the assessment may need to be paused and the patient might need uh, additional uh, investigations, particularly if, for example, there's an abnormal echocardiogram. So the patient's had all these investigations done, um, and then they're brought to the transplant MDT. Could you give the listeners just a feel for what happens on a typical listing meeting, say at Birmingham, and how that decision is made and a consensus is agreed upon uh, with the transplant MDT? So this this does vary um, uh, throughout the different different uh, units, but uh, th there is a degree of consistency consistency, and there is a, a, a guidance with regards to the composition of the MDT. Uh, so it must include obviously the transplant surgeon, the transplant physician, anaesthetist, uh, and and key to all of this is the transplant coordinator. Um, and we always have a dietitian, somebody, uh, a, uh, a CNS and addiction psychiatrist, a social worker in some centers, or a psychologist, uh, and normally somebody who's not directly involved in the, um, in the assessment process for that week chairs the, the meeting. Uh, and the, uh, his, the patient is presented uh, by the uh, by the transplant assess uh, transplant uh, coordinators, but sometimes by the registrars, and we go through the assessments by different members of the team. And at the end of the uh, um, presentation, the chair sums up uh, or summarizes the case, uh, and uh, really uh, looks at the members of the team to come to a consensus. Sometimes it's easy, sometimes it's more tricky. It's sometimes it's 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 so tricky that that we we uh, we may need to defer a, a decision uh, uh, for uh, for that particular case. But in most cases, we do uh, we do make a decision. But it's important to state that that about up to forty percent of patients we actually decline um, having having gone through the assessment process. And just to wrap up this uh, first part of the conversation on the guidelines, it would be helpful to discuss the uh, patients who are then established on the waiting list and their ongoing follow-up and care. From the transplant centre perspective, how do you uh, perceive the ongoing management should be uh, conducted between the local centre and the transplant centre? What are the responsibilities of their referring doctor going forward before they're transplanted? 
Yeah, we, we always try to aim for a shared care approach. Uh, clearly, in the first few months after transplantation, the patient will be attending the transplant centre, sometimes weekly, two to three weekly, uh, depending on, uh, on whether uh, uh, it's been a, a complicated uh, transplant or not. Uh, but beyond the kind of three to six months, we're really looking for shared care with the referring teams. And uh, uh, some some of the uh, more larger uh, hospitals uh, already have a transplant, uh, post-transplant clinic service. So it's quite easy to share care or sometimes even transfer, transfer care uh, to the uh, referring teams. Uh, usually this is after a year. Um, all patients are... are uh, um, um, regularly reviewed in the uh, in the normal clinic on the waiting list. There is a waiting list clinic that the patient uh, uh, attends, usually six weekly. But again, it depends on the arrangement with the referring teams for that particular patient. Uh, some some are, are, as I said, already have a, a transplant clinic clinic set up uh, for those on the waiting list or those or post transplant um, patients. And it's important that that when a patient, if there's a change in the condition. If they become acutely unwell on the waiting list, for example, uh, that, that, that they contact the transplant centre as soon as possible uh, because the patient might, for example, need to be suspended from the, from the waiting list. Our coordinators are very good at doing this and uh, they'll always follow up, for example, patients at DNA clinic uh, quite rigorously uh, to, to find out exactly uh, what's happened. That brings us to an end of the first part of this podcast. Uh, thank you, Dr. Shapathy, for talking us through the process of workup and listing of patients uh, for liver transplantation. I hope you found this useful. Do download the guideline from the Frontline Gastroenterology podcast, which is freely available and open access to all. Do rate the podcast if you found it useful and do join us next month uh, as I continue this conversation uh, with Dr. Shapathy as we discuss part two of the guidelines. Until then, goodbye.